like most societies. Ancient Rome, you know, it started as just a village, a series of villages, actually. The famous Seven Hills. And, like you might expect, very early in their history, they, they had a little conflict, right? They just went and kidnapped some Sabine women and made them their wives. And the myth is that these Sabine women, when their men came to rescue them, they're like, hey, we've been living here for a while, so we're just, we're just going to stay. We kind of like it here. Now, this is likely a myth, or there may be some truth to it, you know. History is a little bit like a game of telephone. Stories get passed down and passed down and passed down, and they get sort of worn smooth, like a rock in a tumbler. Well, the classic conflict in Rome, it was between the wealthy patricians, right? And these are the people who can trace their lineage back to these founders of the city, the original senators of Rome, and pretty much everybody else, right? The plebeians, the mob, the poor people, the ones who live on the Aventine and not the Palatine, on the wrong side of the tracks so to speak. And this is a classic conflict throughout history. You can look in almost any society and you'll see tension between the haves and the have-nots. And frequently it's the have-nots who are fighting the wars, doing all the dirty work, dying in the streets, while the haves, well, they're living up on the Palatine eating sumptuous meals and enjoying their household slaves and whatever they will, whatever way they wish. And in ancient Rome, this conflict comes to a head a few times in its history, but when things start to unravel, they do so in a really bloody way. And we're going to talk about kind of the opening blows in that long, long running sort of, I'm not going to call it a cold war because it certainly wasn't cold, but it was a long running conflict in Rome between the patricians and the plebs on courage and conflict. The thing about ancient Roman history and the figures involved in the stories that you may or may not know is that Rome is, is like any other city-state. Even though it has this complicated system of government and all these rules surrounding voting and tribes and position. What things come down to, really, is the wealthy families in Rome, the powerful families. And in talking about the Gracchi, who were an elite family in Rome, you can't really talk about the Gracchi without talking about the, the family of the Scipios, right? And this is the famous uh, Scipio Africanus, who defeated Hannibal. 
and then Scipio Emilianus, who succeeded him but was not his son. Okay, Scipio Emilianus was actually uh, the son of a first cousin who was adopted into the family. And so he took the name Scipio, but he kept Emilianus to denote where he had basically originally come from. I believe he was the son of Macedonicus. And the Scipios and the Gracchi, I guess what I guess it would be the Scipii, maybe. Those two families are intertwined. Okay, Scipio Africanus marries his daughter Cornelia to the father of Tiberius Gracchus, the Tiberius Gracchus we're going to talk about today, who's named Tiberius Sempronius Gracchus. And this is also, <laughs> Tiberius Sempronius Gracchus is also the name of the younger, but I'm going to refer to the elder as Sempronius Gracchus and the younger as just Tiberius in this case. So if you remember from some of our previous episodes, Tiberius Sempronius Gracchus was the man who served in the Celtiberian Wars and negotiated a peace that lasted like 20 or 25 years in the region. And he was known to be an honorable Roman. Right? He had that reputation. At least if you read Plutarch, that's the way he's described and Tiberius Sempronius Gracchus, like I said, married the daughter of Scipio Africanus, a woman named Cornelia. And Cornelia is going to play uh, a big part in the story of her sons Tiberius and Caius. And we're going to get to Caius in another episode. But in the case of the Gracchi... The elder, Tiberius Sempronius Gracchus, he dies suddenly. And there's this whole myth about how he died, you know, that's, I believe, written down in Plutarch, where there's a story about uh, Tiberius Sempronius Gracchus finding a pair of serpents in his bed, one male and one female, right? And he takes the, he, he, instead of just killing them both, you know, he sees this as an omen. And so he summons like a soothsayer. And the soothsayer tells him that rather than kill both of the serpents or let them both go, this is an omen from the gods. And so that he has to decide which of the snakes to kill. And that if he kills the male snake, then it means that he will die. And if he kills the female, it means that his wife Cornelia should die. Now at the time of their marriage, I believe Cornelia was like, you know, she was 18. She was younger than Tiberius Sempronius Gracchus, Big Daddy Gracchus. And so, and again, this is probably just a myth. Apparently, Tiberius says that it is more proper, given that he's lived, you know, more of his life, that he should kill the male snake, so that he should die and his wife Cornelia should live. And, you know, forget the fact of whether or not this is true. This is supposed to 
who demonstrates something about the character of Tiberius Sempronius Gracchus, right? And I think Plutarch is making a point to put this in the story, to make a point about the whole family, right? If you read his descriptions of Tiberius the Younger, you know, Plutarch kind of comes off like he has some Gracchi sympathies, to, to put it mildly. He says a lot of great things about Tiberius Gracchus the Younger. So anyway, Tiberius Sempronius Gracchus actually does die not long after this whole story about the snakes and he leaves his wife alone to take care of her sons. Now in most cases... Uh, in Roman families, they would find like another male to lead the family. You know, paterfamilias is the word if you haven't heard it. <laughs> Maybe you saw it in uh, Oh Brother, Where Art Thou? That movie with uh, George Clooney. <laughs> but the paterfamilias was like the leader of the family. He was the, uh, you know, the eldest male. He was the, he was considered the leader. But in the case of the Gracchi, Cornelia takes over. And is sort of, you know, maybe not officially, because it's hard to tell from the sources, because a lot of the sources from ancient Rome, they, they don't illuminate the stories of the women. Though, when you read through the histories, you see that the women of Rome played a huge role, right? Not only through uh, political marriages and such things, there were powerful women in Rome. And you get the sense that Cornelia was one of these women. She was highly educated. And, you know, the historians take time to, to, to put that down in the text, that she was highly educated. And there's probably some connection there because she is the daughter of Scipio Africanus. So, uh, you know, the Scipios are one of the elite families in Rome and sort of the Gracchi. But the Gracchi, importantly, the Gracchi are a plebeian family. They are not patrician. They are elite, but they're not a patrician family. And that's going to become important later in the story. But for now, just keep in mind that Cornelia, like I said, was the daughter of Scipio Africanus. And so she saw to the education of her sons. And she herself was highly educated. And she made sure that her sons were also highly educated. And... There is some, you know, some of the historians will, uh, they paint Cordelia in a certain light. Some people think that she was ambitious, right? That, that she was fame hungry and she wanted that fame through her sons. But to me, that seems a little ridiculous. I mean, certainly ambition is a Roman characteristic. And it's not hard for me to imagine a Roman mother urging her sons to greatness. You know? Hey, there, there's, there, there's Scipio. Go say hi to Scipio. You know, get in with him. See if you can get in with the legions. You know, things like that. Motivation, sort of, behind the scenes. But Cornelia is later going to become famous in her own right for being sort of the the ideal Roman woman, right? It, 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 and she sort of, at least in the stories, exemplifies some of these Roman values. She, she bears many children, 
and after the death of her husband, she remains chaste. And this is a big deal to the Romans, you know? This is the epitome of the uh, uh, a female virtue for the Roman sensibilities. And so this family, you know, Cornelia and her sons, this is... They are, they are lauded, you know, most likely after their <laughs> deaths as being the idea of what a proper Roman should be. You know, Cornelia the mother, Tiberius the son. They are both put forward as exemplars of Roman values. So... Cornelia brings her sons up, make sure they are well educated. And as I was saying before, in the last episode, you may have heard that she's able, or Tiberius is able, to get into the legion with Scipio Aemilianus. And again, this is not Scipio Africanus, Cornelius' father. This is Aemilianus, the adopted son and heir of Scipio Africanus who was actually like the son of a first cousin or something like that. But, for all intents and purposes, we're going to say that Scipio Emilianus is the heir, is the son of Scipio Africanus. But keep in mind, you know, he was actually some sort of cousin. But that was the Roman custom. So, this connection between the Scipios and the Gracchi is part of what gets Tiberius this in. With Emilianus. And Emilianus is actually uh, Scipio's, or Scipio, Gra- Tiberius's brother in law because Scipio Emilianus is married to Tiberius's sister, Sempronia. So the families are very interconnected. And as a result, Tiberius Gracchus is able to serve in the legions with Scipio Emilianus during the Third Punic War, and he's supposedly the first to scale the walls of Carthage. And this is written down in the history, you know. But he actually read somewhere else that he actually traveled with sort of a historian who was also a soldier, but he, he made sure that his, you know, tame historian was there to uh, see him scale the walls of Carthage, to be the first up the walls, you know. So there is some, you know, there, there's definitely a political track that Tiberius Gracchus is walking from the start. And so he serves in his tribuneship there with Scipio Emilianus, fights in the Third Punic War. And when he comes back to Rome, he is assigned to serve with Caius Mancinus. Mancinus who, if you remember from our previous episode, was the general who had screwed things up really bad during the Numantine War. He got surrounded during an escape to flee with his army, and he was forced into the position of having to make a treaty. But now, rather than treat with Mancinus... The Numantines, who knew the name of Gracchus because of Tiberius Sempronius, the elder, 
the father of Tiberius Gracchus, who had negotiated that treaty that lasted for like a quarter century. And he'd always treated the Celtiberians well. And so the Numantines said they would treat with no one. They would trust no Roman, save for Tiberius Gracchus. And so you can tell that very early on, Gracchus's star is rising. Right? He's got an honorable name. He's got a reputation. The Numantines respect him as a soldier, right? First to scale the walls of Carthage. And they respect his name because his father had treated them with such honor. And so Tiberius agrees. He goes to negotiate the treaty. And during the course of these negotiations, he's able to save like 20,000 Roman lives. And these are the Roman poor, the legionaries, you know. This is the, these are the lowborn, the freeborn of Rome. But in so doing, he has to give up everything in the camp to the Numantines as plunder. And this whole debacle is seen as very embarrassing by the Senate later on. You know, Mancinus himself, who should have been embarrassed for sending, you know, Gracchus to to do the treaty because Gracchus at this point he's like a caster right it is not his responsibility to be negotiating treaties with enemies of Rome right it, it would be sort of like a um, maybe like a captain or something in the US Army negotiating with the Taliban rather than the president you know but at the time in Rome you know the president would have been there in charge of the army it would have been like, you know, imagine uh, Joe Biden leading an army and uh, being surrounded and then sending out, uh, you know, his press secretary or someone like that to negotiate the treaty. It would have been like the equivalent. And so during the course of these negotiations, you know, this they, uh, they negotiate the terms of this surrender, which, you know, the Romans don't consider it a surrender, but it is. The army is marching away from Numantia. And Tiberius Gracchus remembers that his ledgers, which were part of his official office, were in the camp that the Numantines looted. So he takes a few of his companions and he turns back and he goes back to Numantia. And this part of the story for me, it, you know, it really demonstrates the sort of character that Tiberius Gracchus has. And I think Plutarch is going out of his way to try to demonstrate this as well, and I'll tell you why. So when he goes back to Numantia, he's welcomed by the people there. And they they beg him to treat them like friends. You know, the, Numant the, the Numantines at this point, they wanted the treaty to stand, and they think Gracchus is an honorable guy, so there's a lot of backslapping going on. And Gracchus asks them, you know, hey, can I get my ledgers back? They're kind of important. They have an accounting of my entire office, and I want to be able to uh, give that up properly to the Senate, basically. You know, I, I want to have my official documents back just to make sure that my, you know, my time here was, you know, accounted for correctly. Well, the Numantines agree. They bring him his ledgers, and they also offer him whatever he wants out of the camp for loot, right? Here, take whatever you want. 
And rather than making a grab for wealth, you know, taking anything he wanted from the spoils, Gracchus takes only his ledgers and a bit of frankincense that he apparently used uh, during public sacrifices, you know. And this is meant to show that in contrast to the other generals, especially in that late Republic period, where the custom was for the general just to take everything that they wanted as spoils, you know, and this was common for them to do so. Gracchus is a little more old-fashioned, right? Gracchus, he's the type of guy who's not going to take those spoils unless he earned them. And, again, whether or not this is true, we're not going to worry about that. We're telling the story, mostly as Plutarch tells it. So, when Tiberius returns to Rome, there's going to be a huge outcry about this treaty. And it's going to cause a big political uproar. And that will sort of start the ball rolling for Gracchus's political future. So when the legion returns to Rome, as I said, or at least the officers, right, there's this big outcry in the Senate because the Senate finds this whole peace that was negotiated with the Numantines to be embarrassing for Rome, right? Not only did Mancinus lead the legions into disaster, you know, but this young caster at the time, Tiberius, has negotiated this peace that the Romans see as insulting, really. And so they want to bring back this old tradition, and you might remember this from one of our previous episodes, to where they round up all the officers from the legions and they send them back to the Numantines in chains. Right? This is like the, you know, an expression of, of shame, or even we don't want this, you know, it's a little bit like a, it's a little bit of a punishment and a little bit of an expression of like cultural shame. But like I said before, the Gracchi are kind of allied with Scipio's family, right? And Scipio, during this whole fracas, he steps in on Tiberius's behalf and, and you know, use, exerts his influence or maybe, you know, speaks for him. And the Senate is kind of rebuffed. And so they decide instead to send Mancinus, only Mancinus back in chains, right? So Scipio is able to save Tiberius from this fate. And as it later turns out, the Numantines don't even want Mancinus, you know, poor, poor fucking Mancinus. He's not good enough for anybody. But during this negotiations, one of the things that holds the Senate back from enacting all this punishment, and one of the things that kind of scares them about Tiberius is that the people flocked to his support because 
Like I said, he'd saved so many Roman lives, and that won him a lot of support with the people of Rome. And with his family being plebeian, and with, you know, uh, his reputation, his storied name, the people flocking to support him, that's going to kind of scare the Senate, right? Because there's been this conflict that has been stirring for a long time between the poor of Rome and the patricians. And Tiberius, you know, being whether he's elected to be on the side or whether he's kind of shoved into the role, you know, he's pushed onto the populist side of the argument. And that puts him right up against a lot of the more elite and powerful families in the city. And this is going to sort of herald his future endeavors. It's going to be a first sign of trouble. to kind of take a minute to illuminate a problem that has been brewing in the Republic for a long time. And that's the problem of land ownership. The Roman idea of wealth revolved around land ownership. The more land you had, the more wealthy you were. That's really what the Romans tie their ideas of wealth to, is land. And for a long time, the Romans had a practice to where, you know, all these lands that they gained through conquest, a lot of the times what they do is they'd either sprinkle Romans throughout the region, like they bring some of these landless poor who lived in the city, take them and put them on these conquered lands, and they would pay like a tax into the common treasury, give up some of their crops, and you would have a farmer, you know, who was producing food, and also a family with, you know, another man there to fight in the legions. At the time, to serve in the legions, you had to be a land-owning Roman citizen. Sometimes they would take, uh, you know, entire groups of this landless poor and they'd found new towns in the conquered territories, right? But some of the land that was kind of desolated by the war, it goes into this common land pool. And through some... You know, it doesn't really say how this happened, but the rich people in Rome, the senators, the patricians, you know, they started to gather up these huge tracts of land. And a lot of times these would be adjacent to poorer farms, you know, plebeian families. And sometimes the senators, the patricians would come and buy this land from the poor farmers. Sometimes they would just absorb it. Sometimes they would take it by force, right? And a lot of these farmers, right, would go to serve in the legions and they'd be gone for years at a time. And so the yield for the farm would go down and then the people living on the farm would be unable to pay and they'd lose the farm. Maybe they'd be unable to work it. Maybe the patricians would come in and take it once the soldiers were gone. And so 
legionaries were returning home from fighting long campaigns because at this time in Rome's history, they're fighting everywhere all the time. And they're coming home to find that their farms are no longer there. And so you've got two things happening at once, right? You've got the, the lands of the senators are just growing and growing and growing, and they're getting richer and richer and richer. And a lot of the land is being worked by slaves that are drawn from the conquered territories. And at the same time, you've got veterans who are being forced back into the city and becoming uh, the landless poor, which does two things. It makes them, one, unable to fight in the legions, and two, it, you know, it makes the burden on the city heavier. And what would happen a lot of times is these uh, veterans would go into the city and they'd make some sort of deal with uh, a politician who would give them like a pittance of coin in return for uh, maybe their vote or other favors, right? This is that client and patron relationship that's sort of like central to the Roman way of life. And so over time, Rome is having to lean more and more on its allied cities and its conquered territories to fight its ongoing wars because the number of men available to fight in the legions is shrinking and shrinking. And also, you, you've got a large population of poverty-stricken people in the city who were angry and ready for violence. And this has been an ongoing problem for a good while, right, before Tiberius Gracchus comes along. There have been a few people who would kind of try to uh, fix this problem, and there are laws in place. There, There is an agrarian law where, you know, nobody can own more than, like, it's like 300 acres or something, and you have, like, caps on the number of uh, livestock you can put on the land. But... These laws are just kind of being ignored because the people who, you know, make the laws and sort of run everything are the same people who own the land and are buying it all up. So you've got that classic conflict of interest, right? The powerful have all the wealth and they don't want to give it up, of course, even though this is slowly becoming an anchor around Rome's proverbial ankle you know, dragging them to the bottom. And though several people, like I said, they tried to fix this, you know, nothing just got done because probably they'd been, you know, either ignored or threatened into silence. And so Tiberius, right, when he becomes tribune of the plebs after his time in the Numantine Wars, he needs a bold strategy, right? His star had been rising, like I said, he's got this storied name. And so he needs an issue. Something that will gain him popular support and also kind of shake up the system, right? Something that will make him famous because there's like this constant popularity contest in Rome where, you know, it 
if some other guy's star is rising, that's coming directly out of your, uh, you know, amount of fame, so to speak. So Tiberius needs something that's going to set him apart from his peers. And whether this is like a Machiavellian decision on, on his part, or whether he's like a true believer, it's kind of hard to tell. Maybe it's a little of both. I think that's probably the case with a lot of these Roman reformers. They're not with all of them. Some of them are certainly only power hungry. But with Tiberius, it's, it's hard to say because he is, you know, spoken about so lovingly by Plutarch. Other writers think, you know, there, there was more of a personal motivation. But for whatever reason he does it, Tiberius Gracchus decides to champion the cause of agrarian reform in Rome. And this is going to put him up against the Senate, right? He's going to piss a lot of people off. But the powers of the Tribune, the powers of the Tribune give him a sort of special ability that is kind of unprecedented in Rome's history and it hasn't really been used but he starts to use the methods and the abilities of the Tribune in ways that haven't been done before they're not illegal but they're unprecedented and this is going to cause upheaval in the Roman system young hero, Tiberius Gracchus, he decides to champion the cause of the agrarian reform. And there's kind of a myth about how he, uh, you know, conceives of this problem, or at least notices it, is that when he's with the army traveling back to Italy, they, they pass through Tuscany. And in so doing, he sees like these vast fields that are owned by patrician patrician families being worked exclusively by you know what what he describes as barbarian slaves or what Plutarch describes as barbarian slaves and this is the story that Tiberius is going to tell you know during his rhetoric and so he builds a coalition including his father-in-law and his brother Caius Caius Gracchus, who again we'll get to, and he comes up with the uh, uh, the Lex Sempronius uh, Lex Sempronia Agraria, which is basically just the uh, you know the law of T Tiberius Gracchus's land law. Basically, is what it means, and it goes as follows: it, basically, that they're going to enforce the traditional limits on land ownership and the excess will be sold back to the state and this of course puts a burr under the togas if you will of the senate because many of these senators are the ones who own these vast tracts of land that have been you know through whatever means illegally conglomerated 
And this is where Tiberius, who has been described up to this point as being sort of a gentleman, you know, he's, he's described as being measured and logical and willing to work with people and being kind of quiet, you know, being gentle of nature. This is where he kind of starts to show that he has some serious skills as a rhetorician. He makes this speech in front of the uh, in front of the people in the Senate, and it, and it goes something. He, he has a line in there that's something like, "the the beasts uh, the beasts of the land all have their dens, but the men who fight and die for Italy." have no place to call their home. They enjoy only the light in the air, he said. They roam around with their wives and children with no place to call their own. Something like that. He probably did a much better job than I did. And this argument really moves the people, right? Because he's sort of setting up that uh, this dichotomy that the slaves, these barbarian slaves are taking away something that's endemic, you know, to the Romans, like their right to live on the land and to bear their children and to, you know, grow their society. It's something that's really close to the Roman heart, like I said before. That all these, you know, conquests and and, and everything that have been won through the blood of these, these uh, the military service of these Papalians, you know, is being worked by the same people that they were fighting. And that really speaks to the people of Rome. And again, this, you know, this playing that Tiberius is doing with the people, you know, garnering all this fame and popularity and drawing his power from the people is really frightening to the Senate. Because Rome has this cultural aversion to tyrants, right? And as a tribune, Tiberius has special powers in the government, right? The tribune can like veto anything. And there are 10 tribunes and all of them can like veto anything. They can propose their own laws and they can take their arguments straight to the people. And, and like, you know, traditionally up to this point, like the Senate is, a, a lot of the Senate's power is almost uh, precedential, not presidential, but precedential. <laughs> no, there's, there's precedent for it in the past. It, it, it's, it's held up by custom, you know, and there, and there are these figures in Rome who like remember all these ancient laws, like in their memory, you know, so tradition and custom is something that's very important to the Romans, and in particular very important to these patrician families, you know, who have these storied histories that go back to the founding, etc., etc. And so in championing this cause to redistribute the lands, you know, to, to take the wealth from the rich and give it to the poor is, it, it becomes a hot-button issue. Like, traditionally, you know, Tiberius on his way to bring his agrarian law into being, you know, he stops by and he 
he, he takes it directly to the people. He makes this speech in front of the people, this air and light speech. Before he brings it before the Senate. And this is something that, you know, the tribunes and senators and people like that hadn't really done before. It, it breaks that precedent, right? And for the Romans, that tradition, that precedent is just as important as any law that's chiseled in stone. And so the senators, they see Tiberius as like a rabble rouser or something similar. Now, the problem is, is that Tiberius's law is actually in the interests of everyone except these rich patrician families. Right? And it even, in a way, is kind of in their interest because the patrician families, the, you know, the elites of Rome, they want to make their name through military service. Right? And every year, the consulship changes and every, every young politician in Rome wants to, you know, start on the career path to glory. And one, you know, major step on that path is service in the legions. And glory in war, right? The more glory that you win in war, the you know the better your reputation becomes. And it's it's a it's almost a mandatory thing for every young Roman who aspires to greatness. And so, even though it's in these rich landowners' interests to give land to the poor so they can have more soldiers to fight more wars and win more glory. The cost is going to come directly out of their proverbial pockets. Because this land, you know, that's going to be capped off according to the traditional laws, is basically going to be ripped directly from them and given to the poor. And, you know, I can't speak for the way things were in ancient Rome, but we all know how a divide develops between the rich and the poor in any society. After the rich have been rich for a few generations, they look upon the poor almost as if they are a different species sometimes. You know, it's, it's, it's an almost human phenomenon, I suppose. It's a human phenomenon. It's a natural thing. Not that it's tasteful or desirable, but it happens. And so certainly many of these senators, you know, not only do they not want to give up their wealth, but they certainly don't want to give it up just so it can be given away to the plebs. Certainly not. And so in championing this cause, Tiberius is drawing a clear line in the sand that he is for the people. And then he's pitting himself against the Senate and the Optimates. So Tiberius proposes his agrarian reform bill, if you will, if you want to call it a bill. And so, you know, of course, like I said, this incenses the Senate. The Senate, they're having none of it, right? And 
Arguments break out on both sides. But the Senate knows that any one of the tribunes can veto this bill before it goes through, right? And so that is the route they take in defending themselves from Tiberius's law. And so they find a tribune and they decide to make him their, their, you know, <laughs> I, I want to call him their patsy, right? Patsy is the word I'm going to use because the man they find is a guy named Marcus Octavius. And Marcus Octavius is described as being, you know, a, a sober fellow, one that is actually a good friend of Tiberius Gracchus. And Marcus Octavius, you, you really get the sense in reading about this whole thing that the senators were probably leaning on him really hard, right? Marcus Octavius has got to look over his shoulder at all these powerful men in Rome and pit all of those people against his friendship with Tiberius and backing Tiberius's reform bill. And so Marcus says that he'll veto the bill and this really, really pisses Tiberius off. And this is where, you know, Tiberius kind of shows that he's got a little bit of fire of his own because he withdraws his original bill where the state will compensate these landowners and instead proposes a new agrarian reform bill where they're just going to confiscate the land. Anything that, you know, any of these patricians have beyond the allotted amount will just be taken and they'll be ordered to vacate with no compensation. And so you can imagine the, the arguments that break out on both sides and it, it says that there weren't they like they weren't insulting one another there they hadn't become violent at this point there were no threats being made there there was just spirited debate and you know on one side you've got the patricians who they say things like you know uh, a lot of this land is tied up with dowries you know and and dowries were important uh, economic measures for marriages and things like that and they say that their ancestors, you know, were buried on some of this land, which, you know, is kind of a persuasive argument. And they say that um, a lot of this um, land is tied up with inheritance, you know, from their fathers. And what will they be given in return for their inheritance, etc., etc. And on the other side, you've got, you know, the basically the lamentations of the poor. You know, the fact that these, you have these hordes of, of poor landless Romans who can't raise children, who can't fight in the legions, and who basically just make things, who, you know, who just basically are just a burden on the city and the state itself. And so this spirited argument goes back and forth, and finally it gets down to Tiberius and Marcus Octavius, it, it really hangs on the two of them. And Tiberius even offers to pay Octavius out of his own pocket because Octavius is one of the landowners who's going to be dispossessed by this law. And Tiberius, even though, according to Plutarch, he doesn't have much money, but he must have some money to be 
you know, to, to, to be an official in the government. But according to, he, he's not one of the richest, I suppose, in Rome. And Tiberius offers to pay Marcus Octavius out of his own pocket for his land if he will withdraw his veto. And you kind of get the sense that Marcus Octavius was probably looking over his shoulder at all the senators behind him and all the wealthy landowners and all their death stares. Assassination wasn't uncommon in the Roman Republic. And these are some powerful people standing behind him. And so, of course, Marcus Octavius, although you get the sense that he doesn't like it, because he's kind of seemed amenable to the whole thing in the beginning. When, when Tiberius first proposes this law, Marcus Octavius is going to stay out of the whole thing. But again, he's picked as the patsy and he's pressured by the Senate. And so Marcus Octavius says no. That he won't take Tiberius's deal and that he will veto the law. And so then Tiberius basically kind of does the equivalent of a government shutdown. He, there, there are these rituals that need to be done every day, and Tiberius puts like his official seal on the Temple of Saturn, and what it basically does is, it like prevents the uh, the casters from getting the, the the magistrates from getting the money uh, required for like the government functions or something. So it's kind of the equivalent of, of like a congressional shutdown of the government. It's eerily similar. <laughs> And so, for a small time anyway, things kind of die down. So days go by, and, and like every morning, these you know, religious rites need to be done so that the, that the buildings can be opened and the business of governing Rome can continue. And every day the tribunes are asked if they're going to allow these buildings to be open. And Tiberius Garca says no. He continues his government shutdown. And it's, you know, it's so petty, but it, but it, but it's so interesting. There's all this political gamesmanship that goes on between the patricians and, and, and you know, the developing populares. Like, they weren't really called the populares at this time. But we'll, we'll call them that. The populares of Tiberius Garca's side. And like the patricians, the men of property, start putting on the garb of mourning and and going around the city and kind of making a show of things. And this is something that Romans would do to kind of like publicly signal they were in distress, right? It's like if you were going to be put on trial for some serious crime, you know, maybe you would put on this garb. And it's something that the sinners start doing, you know, to kind of uh, bemoan the death of the Republic, if you can imagine. But finally, it comes back around to voting day, and then the patricians, <laughs> they steal the voting urns, right? No urns, no vote. <laughs> Which is more of this kind of petty gameplay that goes on. But eventually, Tiberius, uh, his side is able to convince them or strong-arm them or something into bringing back the voting urns. And the business of governance finally continues 
and Tiberius's land reform laws once again before the Senate. And there's some argumentation that goes on just like before. And you get the kind of sense that Tiberius is trying to go about doing things the right way. Right, he's referring matters back to the Senate, but the Senate is full of these landowners, so they don't help at all. And it comes back down to Marcus Octavius and his veto as tribune. Pitting Marcus Octavius against his friend Tiberius once again. But see, Tiberius has been strategizing with his people and his back is now against the wall. And he's thought up an unprecedented strategy. One that was legal according to the Constitution and his tribunal powers, but not one that had been done before, right? It was unprecedented. And remember how much the Romans love precedent, especially the rich landowners. So when Marcus Octavius says that he's going to veto the bill, even though Tiberius has tried many times to keep this from happening, Tiberius turns to the people and says, any tribune of the plebs who would vote against your interests is no true tribune at all. And so he calls for a vote of no confidence, basically, in Marcus Octavius. He wants to strip him, strip him of his tribuneship, right? To throw him out of office. And now, like I said, this is legal for him to do. Right? You, you can call a vote of... Like any tribune could have done this. Could have called for a vote of no confidence. But no one had done it before. And you get the sense reading uh, the text that... The tribuneship was like really important to Marcus Octavius. I mean, it, of course it would be. And these men are friends, you know. And this is kind of this tragic tale of these friends who are pitted against one another. And... The vote goes forward. And the Romans, they they kind of vote in this sort of Republican fashion where um, one man will vote for the whole tribe, right? Will come forward and cast his vote for the whole tribe. And so the voting goes forward. And before the final vote is cast, Tiberius stops the voting, right? But when it becomes obvious that Marcus Octavius will be voted out of office if he does not withdraw his veto... And Tiberius stops the voting and he says that he's going to give Marcus Octavius one last chance. And he basically begs Octavius to withdraw his veto on the land bill. You know, at this point, he's almost begging him to, like, you know, save their friendship. To save himself. That, you know, none of this will go forward if he just withdraws his veto. And Marcus Octavius stands for a long time in silence and considers his answer, right? And tears come to his eyes. And he looks over his shoulder to all the patricians, you know, probably like sitting in the gallery. And they all must be giving him this, you know, deathly stare. The thousand yard stare, you know. The keep your fucking mouth shut or do what we tell you or else kind of stare 
And so with tears in his eyes, you know, for fear of all the patricians, Marcus Octavius says to Tiberius, do what you will. And so the vote goes forward. And Marcus Octavius is voted out of office. And there's like chaos, you know, after this because Tiberius's land bill goes forward and it passes. And so, you know, the mob like erupts. First, they try to tear Marcus Octavius apart. Like one of his servants who's, you know, trying to protect him gets his eyes clawed out by the mob. And only, the, it's, it's like only at the intervention of Tiberius himself does the crowd like back off of Marcus Octavius. But then they surround Tiberius and they, they like cheer him as like a new founder of Rome. And, and, and even more, right? He, he attains this cult leader status. And they, you know, they like carry him home and go back to his home, cheering him as like a founder of Rome. But the senators, you know, this site, the, the poor gathered around Tiberius, you know, cheering him, trying to tear apart a tribune of the plebs. And this was, listen, attacking a tribune of the plebs attacking any tribune inside like the city limits of Rome was like a sacrilegious crime okay so that's shocking in and of itself but now they have they get to see the poor like carry Tiberius home like some sort of conquering king and this is the very thing that scares the shit out of them right and this is going to start them plotting on Tiberius' life. So after Tiberius' law passes, he assembles like three men to help him administer all these changes, right? To help redistribute all this land. And it's basically his brother Caius and his father-in-law. So, I mean, real impartial. And at this point, the Senate starts just making everything difficult. It, it, you know, it becomes more of that petty gamesmanship kind of stuff, right? They... They don't let him get the supplies he needs. Like, they don't give him a tent in which to work and, you know, dole out all these uh, lands, you know. They restrict his funding. So it's kind of like in Congress where, you know, a law passes and Congress just decides to defund whatever commission, you know. It's a similar thing. The senators are dragging their feet with enacting these changes. And you get the feeling that there's a lot of back and forth that's going on, right? At some point, um, speculation goes around about anybody around Tiberius who dies, right? At, at some point, one of his friends dies, and there's some questions about the circumstances, and the rumors are that the patricians, you know, had him murdered. 
and anybody around Tiberius at this point who dies, it's, it, you know, the reasons are always chalked up to, uh, you know, poison or assassins or something, you know. It, people are <laughs> going conspiracy brain on the whole thing. And at some point, Tiberius, <laughs> he starts dressing in morning garb the way the patricians were doing before so he's not above a little showmanship himself and he like drags his family before the assembly and he he begs the people to take care of his family when he's gone you know clearly clearly he's trying to signal to the crowd that his life is in danger and when things are starting to go you know, starting to heat up, something throws a match into the tinderbox, so to speak. And the king of Pergamum dies. And he wills his entire kingdom to Rome. And this is something that uh, he probably did because, you know, all the countries of the Mediterranean are falling, you know, more and more under Rome's control one way or the other and maybe he thinks rather than have the Romans come in and conquer and burn everything you know rather than have the legions march in to take Pergamum he maybe he thinks that he can have everything happen peacefully and so where he dies he wills his kingdom to Rome and Pergamum was where modern day Turkey is and it was a rich kingdom Right, It was full of land and gold. I mean, this whole area at the time, Asia was like the jewel of the Mediterranean. It was the wealthiest part of the Mediterranean world. And so all of a sudden, you know, rather than in the past, you know, the Senate would have been like, thank you very much for all this land, we'll take it. And then they dole out whatever portions they want, <laughs> you know. And maybe sell some pittance into the common land or whatever. Whatever illegal means they were using to gather up all the land, they would have done this once again. And this is a rich, rich area, right? This has to be like, I mean, they have to be salivating over this prize. But now, but now Tiberius's land laws are in place. And he's concentrating on enforcing it, right? So, of course, Tiberius wants to settle some, uh, you know, landless Romans on this land. He wants to put some of those veterans who need their own farms onto this land that's in Pergamum. And not only that, but Pergamum has a lot of money as well. So this compensation argument that the, uh, you know, the patricians are putting up uh, it starts to lose ground as well because they have enough gold now to pay off all these landholders for the land they've illegally taken. So, the patricians really see no way out. And on top of this, right, if Tiberius Gracchus is able to settle a large number of landless Romans onto this rich land in Pergamum, there's going to be a lot of, you know, poor Romans, people able to fight in the legion, 
who will owe their land, so to speak, their owe their loyalty to Tiberius Gracchus. And he already has so much popular support, right? This goes right back to that client-patron relationship that I was talking about. All of a sudden, you're going to have a lot of people who owe their loyalty to Tiberius Gracchus. And the Senate just can't have that. And it's starting to become clear that these... You know, the tribuneship in particular, that a savvy politician will be able to take the powers of the tribune and use them to great effect, as Tiberius is doing. And, uh, you know, even when, when Marcus Octavius was deposed as well, the person who was elected as the tribune to replace him was one of Tiberius's clients, right? Under client patron thing. So, he was just basically in Tiberius's pocket. And with two tribuneships that, you know, are voting his way, he's almost unstoppable. And the Senate, at this point, you know, their backs are to the wall. And things are going to get really ugly. So as the year continues on, the fears that the Senate have in regards to Tiberius' lust for power only grow. Like there's this rumor that the, the blood heir of the king of Pergamum, the one who was, I suppose, disinherited by his father, presents Tiberius with like a diadem and a purple cloak. And purple in the ancient world was the color of royalty, right? And I'm not sure if this is true or not, or if it was just a rumor, but but it's, you know, it seems to me like a rumor because it's like the very thing that the Senate are terrified of. And Tiberius knows that the, the following year, as soon as he leaves office, right, he's made a lot of enemies. And something that used to happen in ancient Rome is when you you were in office and let's say you made some enemies as Tiberius has done, you know, when you, as soon as you, when you were in office, you were protected from being prosecuted, being taken to court and prosecuted, right? And at this time, the Senate, they're the ones who sit on all the juries. So... It's pretty much a foregone conclusion that when Tiberius leaves office that he'll probably be brought up on some sort of trumped-up charges and, you know, possibly exiled, maybe even killed for quote-unquote crimes against the Republic or whatever the Senate wanted to charge him with. And he knows that in order to continue to push his reforms through the government and to hold on to the power that he's gained he's going to have to run for office yet again and he needs a magistrate a a magistrate I can't even say the word a magistrate (laughs) he needs to hold a magistrate office And, and really what he needs is to be tribune of the plebs for a consecutive year Right, and this is specifically unconstitutional. 
according to the Roman tradition, right? You could be, you could hold multiple offices in the government, but you were, you know, any office you held was like a year at a time, and there had to be like a gap between them if you were to repeat. Like, you could be consul multiple times, but you couldn't be consul like year after year after year. And the same goes for the tribune, the tribunate, right? Tiberius, you know, the laws of Rome specifically like forbid Tiberius from becoming tribune for two years in a row. But Tiberius goes to the people anyway, and he asks them to elect him again for a consecutive year to be tribune, right? And he makes some promises. He like he promises to reduce the years of military service, right? And this really appeals to people. He also uh, promises to, uh, what was it? I can't even remember now. He, he promises to reduce the years of military service. And he also promises to pack the courts with like 300 new members of the Senate. And that's like from drawn from the equestrian class. He wants to add 300 equestrians to the juries so that the, you know, the, the people can no longer be judged simply by the Senate. And the Senate can't anymore just get away with whatever crimes they want, right? Because previously the Senate would, you know, if someone was brought up on charges, they'd just be judged by their fellow senators and, of course, be acquitted. And previously the people didn't have the right to the appeal, and that's, that's this third element, is that they'll now have the right to appeal the verdict of the juries, right? And before, just the word of the juries was just final. And uh, to the Senate, you know, this looks like exactly the sort of thing that they're afraid of, right? Almost everything he's doing is designed to sort of chip away at their power, right? He's going to reduce their power in the juries. He's going to reduce the military service for the, the, the people, and that's going to gain him even more popularity and loyalty from the plebs. And then he's also going to give them the right of appeal, which chips away even more at the senatorial power. And so Tiberius has kind of made his bed here, you know, and he, he actually, he's aware of how dangerous his actions are becoming, right? Because he goes to the people and he's like really emotional. And this is uncharacteristic of him, you know, because he's described as being... Uh, really sober and, and measured and gentle. You know, he goes before the people and he's like really emotional. And he says that he's afraid his enemies will break into his house overnight and kill him, you know. And so a bunch of the people actually camp outside of Tiberius's house overnight to protect him. And though the Senate has kind of you know, this, this isn't just Tiberius's fault. Like, the Senate has been pushing him as well. It's been like an interplay between the two of them that have brought things to this boiling point. But to the Senate, the people camping outside of Tiberius's home to protect him, you know, that looks to them like Tiberius mobilizing the plebs to be his vigilantes. And that, for them, is going to be the last straw.
so finally, the day of the vote comes. And Tiberius hears that the people are being blocked from voting for whatever reason. And he decides that it's incumbent upon him to go down and make an appeal directly to the people, right? To fix this problem. And from the start, he's like beset with a bunch of ill omens, right? And this is where the the story, it, it works in some of that myth-making that can be, you know, really dramatic at times. So, the you know, they they order some uh, a priest to come and draw the auguries or, or, or something and they have these birds they're going to release right and that's one of the things that they did was release birds to see which way they fly and they would divine things from the direction and the birds like refuse to come out and even though like the handler's like shaking the cage the birds refuse to come out except one and it comes out and he throws food down in front of it you know to try to entice them and only one steps out, and it, like, raises its left wing. And there's all this superstition around uh, the left side in, 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 in Roman culture, you know? So these, this omen of the bird raising its left wing is supposed to, uh, you know, it's, support, it's supposed to foreshadow something bad. And so, also, in Tiberius is coming out of his house, he stubs his toe, like, really bad. And this is another theme that kind of appears in ancient stories. I think it happens in the story of uh, the Iliad. And also, when he's walking, you know, out of his house, like there's uh, some ravens when he's on the way to the forum that knock loose like a roof tile and it lands directly at his feet, like from his left side. Again, another mention of the left. And at this point, you know, uh, even Tiberius's friends are starting to, like, see all these ill omens. And they're starting to think that this is a bad idea. Right? They're trying to encourage Tiberius to turn back, to go back home. Right? Just leave it. Let's go back home. But one of his friends, who's, like, a, an educated sort of, uh, you know, orator... He turns, he's, he says, it would be a shame if Tiberius Gracchus, you know, uh, son-in-law of Scipio and son of Tiberius and all this, hero of the Republic, you know, fails to come to the people's aid. And he kind of makes fun of him a little bit. Like, you know, don't be scared of, uh, of a bird talking about these ravens. And so, you know, Tiberius, he... Despite all these ill omens, he decides to continue. And he makes it, uh, you know, to the capital. And one of his friends, like a, like a Fulvius Flaccus, I think it was, he had heard that the Senate was planning to kill Tiberius. So he comes, and even like right before Tiberius appears, he, he says, Hey, you know, the Senate's planning to kill you. What are you doing here? And instead of turning back... The agreed-upon action, whether it was Tiberius or someone else who makes this decision, but the decision is made to pass out weapons. Okay? And just so you know, it's illegal to carry a sword in Rome. Right? Only, like, only the legions were allowed to go armed. And, and even then, it was, like, illegal to carry a sword inside 
the city limits of Rome. And so, you know, when people are arming themselves, they're arming themselves with whatever they have to hand. You know, chair legs, knives, <laughs> things like that, blackjacks, you know, clubs, anything that they can get their hands on. And when Tiberius hears this, that his life is under threat, he kind of, he touches his, his forehead. And for Tiberius, this is supposed to signal to his people that his life is in danger. Right? But somehow or another, like, the Senate or representatives of the Senate, they see this and they think that he's calling for a crown to be put on his head. And so for them, this is enough. This is the last straw. This is obviously proof that Tiberius wants to be made a king, a tyrant. And Rome cannot abide tyrants. Right? Things have been boiling over for so long, and he's been grasping for power, and this is the last straw, according to them. But the consul refuses to act against Tiberius. And now... There's an important man missing from Rome at this time, and that's Scipio Emilianus. Right, and if you remember when Tiberius was sort of in the hot seat for the treaty he had made with the Numantines, it was Scipio who stepped in to speak on his behalf. But now Scipio is gone, right? He's actually in Celtiberia dealing with the Numantines while this is going down. So Scipio's not there to help him. And so, the, the, you know, the consul refuses to act, but another senator stands up and, and says, well, you know, if the chief magistrate won't act to save the republic, then everyone who values the law, follow me, right? And he, he, he pulls his toga over his head, and it like, sort of like a hood, I imagine. And this is kind of meant to take on the garb of a priest, right? He's, he's basically signaling that he's donning holy vestments. And so he raises a mob, and they all arm themselves with, like, the legs of chairs and, and, and anything else they have to hand, right? And they storm up to the capital. And when they get there, they fall upon the people gathered around Tiberius. And through, I don't know, the, the awe of their patrician status or just their ferocity and their anger, maybe they came upon them suddenly, the followers of Tiberius are scattered and they start to flee. And then Tiberius himself turns to flee. But before he can make it, right, somebody grabs a hold of his toga and he's able to kind of slip out of the toga, right? Maybe he does like a, like a juke move. And he starts to run away again, but then he stumbles over one of the bodies that are laying in the street there due to the violence. And then one of his fellow tribunes is the first to actually strike a blow, and he hits Tiberius over the head with like a chair leg. And then the rest of the Senate surrounds him. And together, they beat Tiberius Gracchus to death there in the streets. And like 300 of his supporters that day were beaten to death. And Plutarch is careful too to denote that none are killed by the sword because again, that's illegal. But this is the first real outbreak of political violence 
in the streets of Rome. To kill a tribune of Rome, as I said before, to the Romans it was a sacrilege. And to kill a tribune of Rome while he's standing on the Capitol Hill, which is, you know, sacred to Jupiter, is horrific, right? This is, this is like this, imagine that, you know, a group of Republicans had like ripped the benches free from the Senate floor and attacked Barack Obama and clubbed him to death inside the Senate House, right? And then went on to kill 300 of his supporters, right? It's the equivalent of something like that, but even more because with the Romans, you know, there's religion tied up in the workings of their government. Not so much with us today. That's something that's harder for us to understand. But for the Romans, this was more than just unprecedented. This was sacrilegious. And it's chaos, right? The This isn't like a battle in the streets. This is just a riot in which 300 people are beaten to death. And in the wake of Tiberius' death... You know, there are more executions. People who had supported him who weren't killed in the riot were put on trial, executed without trial. One guy is like shut up in in, in like a ship full of vipers or something in like a cage with, with a bunch of poisonous snakes and executed that way. And also, the Senate doesn't allow for the families to gather their dead, right? Caius... Tiberius' brother wants to gather his brother's body and perform the proper funeral rites. You know, and this was very important to the Romans, as it would be to, to us today. But the Senate denies him. And instead, they gather up all the bodies of everybody who had supported Tiberius and Tiberius himself, and they throw their bodies into the Tiber. And this fate you know, throwing the body into the Tiber. It was a punishment for criminals. That's what they did with criminals' bodies. That wasn't what you did with a hero of Rome, like Tiberius Gracchus. And the Senate, they're very short-sighted in what they've done because in the end, you know, Tiberius' land reforms are kind of pushed through anyway. Number one. Number two... You know, the Senate kind of has this view, and this continues into the future, that when these, you know, uprisings happen, that they can just kind of kill the ringleader and forget about the problem, right? That's what they try to do here. They try to put out the fire by, you know, yanking out the brightest log and and, and dousing it. But what they don't count on is the long-standing, simmering resentment that this will create in the people. And not just in the people, but in friends of Tiberius Gracchus. And in particular, they're going to make one enemy that's going to push things even farther. 
We're going to talk about that next time. Thanks for listening to this tragic tale about the rise and fall of Tiberius Gracchus, a hero of Rome, an innovative politician, right? Now, this conflict is certainly not going to end. In fact, it's only going to get worse. And we're going to talk about that in the next episode. I hope you enjoyed this. If you did, please like, follow, subscribe, leave us a review. We will love you for it. And if you're feeling squirrely, if you like to read, then you can go to my website. That's dwhawkins.com. Click the join tab. Become a member of my mailing list, the best mailing list in indie fantasy. And get yourself two free books. And I'll send you love letters from time to time with other dark tales from history. Which, if you've been here this long, I'm assuming that you enjoy. So much love, and I'll see you next time on Courage and Conflict.